If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 508. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Also, you click on that support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can go to learn true, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com, or click on that shop tab at brianmclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Lots of great ways to support the show. You heard about McClanahan Academy at the opening of this podcast, so I don't want to re- rehash what I said there, but it is a great website. A great educational website, and if you purchase a class, you help keep the show free of charge. You can also support the show by sharing this podcast around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally, and of course, send me your show requests. Now, this is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode that's interesting. This is actually a listener uh, sent this to me and thought, well, this goes along with the theme of your show. And this is what the crazy lefties are starting to say about this now. So it seems that localism is now racist, right? Or xenophobic and racist. That if you believe in taking care of your community first and being interested in sustainability and uh, local government, uh, having a, a community that reflects your views, well, that is now xenophobic and racist according to uh, this particular author from the ChristianCentury.org, Rebecca Weiss, wrote this August 9th, 2021. And I found this piece, of course, this is coming from a Christian publication. And the the scope of the piece is that um, we need to be careful as Christians that what we're doing here in localism is leading away, opening a door, to racism. Now, I'm going to get into this piece. Some of it is just kooky leftist stuff. In fact, I think Rebecca Weiss actually understands localism quite well, but she can't get over uh, the, the fact that if people start doing this, well, they might have communities that more reflect their views and they're going to try to live together and, uh, you know, have these, and have these areas that uh, maybe are, are more conducive to, to what they think. And that would actually be a good idea. She thinks it's a bad idea for this. And in fact, she gets in the, the crunchy cons, she calls them. This is the, the uh, conservatives that are interested in environmentalism and other things. So let's, let's get into this. She says, Celebrity farmer Joel Salatin, known to many from Michael Pollan's best-selling book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, was one of the most influential figures in the local food movement. So it was a blow to many of his fans when his history of appallingly racist remarks and bigotry toward people of color became public knowledge. After an ongoing social media dispute, Mother Earth News, the go-to publication for devotees of the local and sustainable, cut all ties with Salatin in 2020. 
To me, the revelation of Salatin's bigotry was not surprising. I've been involved in the local food movement as an eco-grower, eco-grower for nearly 15 years. I've sold at farmer's markets, supported restaurants and caterers with fresh produce and organized crop-sharing plans, popularly known as Community Supportive, Supported Agriculture, or CSAs. I have enthusiastically promoted localism as the philosophical underpinning of this work. But I have become increasingly aware of how threads of white supremacy and ethno-nationalism run through the local movement and through localism in general. In fact, uh, and I'm going to s- stop here, Weiss would probably say that uh, you know, if you're on the right and you like the idea of localism, well, you're a bad person. After years of vocal advocacy for localism, I now see the ideology's potential dangers as well. It's not really an ideology. So this is where the whole idea of localism, right? It's not an ideology at all. It's tradition. It's tradition. It's not an ideology. The point is to preserve the community and to ensure that you have some modicum of independence in your life. And look, where I live, there are these there are CSA groups. Almost all of them are lefties. Uh, now, one in particular that I uh, we used to uh, use quite a bit. I mean, the guy is a. I mean, he is a hippie of all hippies, but he loves Wendell Berry. He loves this kind of uh, southern agrarianism that you find in Wendell Berry. Um, I'll take my stand. He loves that kind of stuff. And I'll never forget when I was in graduate school, I was assigned, we were in a New South reading seminar, and and uh, I asked, the book was there, I'll take my stand, and I'd already read it, so I said, hey, can I, can I write the review of that? And I'll never forget uh, the, the kind of hippie guy in the class with me sat next to me, can't remember his name now, but he said, um, yeah, man, I love that book. That's a great book. Uh, he was on the left, far left, but he loved it because it was all about localism. It was all about the local, the farming, and, and uh, being one with the environment, environmentalism. It was great. But, of course, to Rebecca Weiss, it's all bad if you're a conservative and you like localism because that means that you don't like other people. Well, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means they can have their community. Why can't we have our community and they have their community? If they're on the left, we don't... I mean, why do we have to, you know, be in communities? Can't we Can't we just have our own little thing here? No, 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 no. That's She gets to this at the end of the piece and says, you know, as Christians, we need to make sure that we don't have these things because this creates problems, ultimately. Then she gets into this. Localism is the belief that political, social, and economic order should be structured as much as possible on a local communal level. Now, um, this is more like Jeffersonian agrarianism, right? Or Jeffersonianism, if you want to have an ism, an ideology. But it's basically the American tradition. You, I mean, you could take it south or north. I mean, either way. You had, the, you had groups in the north that were certainly interested in their own uh, traditions and customs, and and they had those, and then you had that in the South, and there was always this resistance to an outside force coming in and telling you what to do. You did the best things for you. That is certainly part of this American tradition. This is more tradition than an ism, as I just said. 
She says, once a fringe ethos popular among counterculturalists, localism has migrated to the mainstream of contemporary society. It's common these days to prefer the artisanal, small business, and farm-to-table food and to reject big-box stores and suburban sprawl. I don't know how common it is, but, I mean, people are talking about this more. Uh, and I think that's because of the idea that there has to be roots. There has to be something tangible to your life. It can't just be consumer goods and urban living, even though urban living does have conveniences and things like that. But then you get into the situation where you're, you're living around people you really don't like and they're voting to do things you really don't want. So if you could have a better local small town, I mean, this is kind of a romantic view of America in some ways, but the small town, the people that you know, we, we, humans are generally drawn to small because you want to know the people that you're dealing with on a regular basis. Whether you like them or not, you want to know who they are. And in larger and larger communities, you don't have that. She says, The ultimate symbol of this reorientation toward the local is the farmer's market. No longer just a venue for growers to make a little profit off their extra vegetables. Farmer's markets are now thriving centers of cultural activity where fashionable professionals pay generously for heirloom produce and artisanal goods, and their children learn about social science while local bands play live music. Now, I don't know what farmer's market she's going to, but the farmer mar farmer's market I have around we have around here aren't like that at all. <laughs> I mean, you do have like a, there is a, a market days in the city, and they have some other stuff there. Uh, but, you know, your farmer's market is generally a building where you got some produce there, and you go in, you buy stuff. There's... This is what it is. A good farmer's market gives one a sense of belonging, being connected with one's community and environment. This is localism in action. Also, a lot of farmer's markets bring in food from outside as well. So, I mean, it's not like everything's grown right there. Localism. Um, and so that ism. Now, I'm not advocating an ism. I'm not advocating the ideology and think locally, act locally. What I'm advocating is that you need to, to take care of your own backyard first. You take care of that first, then you worry about your state, then you worry about or then you worry about the, the federal government. These are things and it's, it's more of a, an, a, a way of living when it comes to government. It's not an ideology because I mean, you, know, you, you take care of your city, your, your county, your town, you make that reflect what you want, and then you work out from there. And then she gets this. Localism, is also touted as a political alternative to the extremes of authoritarian centralized government on the one hand and anarchic lawlessness on the other. In place of a one-size-fits-all approach to legislation, a localist approach would allow regional authorities to address their own problems in their own way. Localism stands for the idea that there is no one set of solutions to diverse national problems, writes David Brooks in the New York Times. Instead, it brings conservatives and liberals together around the thought that people are happiest when their lives are enmeshed and carrying face-to-face -face relationships, building their communities together. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a, a nice description of what this could be, uh, and how federalism—we could call this federalism—how that would actually allow for communities to uh, of divergent political beliefs to coexist and not have, uh, you know, these kind of violent political interactions, whether they are actually violent or even rhetorically violent. But you got to get people to believe this stuff. She says, Brooks may be overly optimistic about localism as a force for political unity, but it's true that bi-local resonates across ideological lines. 
Why is he overly optimistic about political unity? Well, because you have people like Weiss, who says it can't work. Or you have totalitarians who want to make sure that everyone lives like you. I mean, that's the other issue with this. The movement to support local farmers, buy from local businesses, and invest in one's immediate community attracts activists and organizers of all stripes. So this is true. And on a moral level, the appeal of localism is undeniable. It emphasizes care for the environment, economic solidarity, and sustainable practices. The common good may seem abstract when contemplated globally, but localism is, pre is predicated on a faith in individuals' capacity to invest in their own civic order and ecosystems, as well as to understand concretely what their communities need to thrive. The common good may seem abstract when co contemplated globally. Well, this is the thing. You had that phrase, this is why I said think locally, act locally. Instead of think globally, act locally, you think locally and act locally. You take care of your backyard. This is the whole point. And I think this is where, I mean, Weiss does I, I understand these things. But again, she's looking at this from a position of a top-down. She still has a global perspective and the local fosters the global. That's, that's a leftist position. That's not what you want to do. Ultimately, if everybody was thinking locally and acting locally, you would have a much better environment globally. Uh, particularly if you know, people were interested in some of these things, like, you know, taking care of natural resources and doing these things. Yeah, I mean, that would work. Now, you're also going to have people that think locally and they want to exploit the resources. I mean, this is something that could happen too. It depends on your worldview and how you think about these things. Increased wealth disparity and centralization have turned too many of our communities, both urban and rural, into food deserts. The lengthy foodways from corporate farms and factories sometimes end before reaching less advantaged communities and grow increasingly expensive the longer they extend. It's not just food either. Disadvantaged communities are experiencing decreased access to entertainment, education, arts, culture, and medical services. Unjust labor practices and pollution of ecosystems cease to be theoretical and become personal when they are happening in plain view. From the perspective of Christian ethics, localism can be thought of as a way of living out of both the mandates of charity and the responsibilities of stewardship. So again, it's a bunch of leftist drivel here. Rebecca Weiss is a leftist. She doesn't like conservatives getting on board with localism because that means it's going to ruin it. Because you get conservatives on board, these people are xenophobic. These people are nationalist. They're xenophobic. They're terrible. A chance of political unity, a possible fix to the bleakness of rampant inequality, an emphasis on our moral responsibilities both to the environment and to the worker. If localism sounds too good to be true, it may be because I have not yet addressed the ways in which it can go tragically wrong. On its own, it is not only insufficient, it can be dangerous. Too great an emphasis on the romance of the immediate can lead to fear of the other. Care for one's own community can morph into isolationism. Localism can bleed into nationalism and even white supremacy. Oh my, here comes the boogeyman out, right? So all these things can be good, but... I haven't gotten into how this is tragic. If you just fear, if you just focus on your immediate, then you fear the other. I don't think fear is the right word. I think, I mean, look, you don't want the other. It's not fear. 
So I would ask this Christian, Rebecca Weiss, who's writing for this Christian magazine, and let's say, I mean, you're trying to have this Christian society, and people come in that don't agree with it, and they don't want it, and they start undermining it. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with that? I mean, if if you have your, your localism, and you've got your, your world is great, and then you have these outside forces working in on it, are you okay with that? Or are you saying, well, wait, I mean, maybe we should stop that stuff. Because if she doesn't say you should stop with it, then you're not really dedicated to, to the theology. If the theology is the core of your life, well, then you should, you should resist any encroachments on that. Care for one's own community can morph into isolationism. Is it? I mean, I, I don't know many local people that are isolated. They still look at what's happening around. They still go to other places, but yet they have theirs that they get to go back to as a reprieve from all these other things. That's a pretty nice thing. Localism can bleed into nationalism. What kind of nationalism? Do you even know what that means? And even white supremacy. Then she says, There was a time when I was unaware of this overlap. I rarely discussed politics with other growers. I assume people who were invested in local food and sustainable agriculture must be liberal or progressive. <laughs> I assumed. What happens when you assume? The old phrase, when you assume you do something. So she's a progressive. So oh, all these people, all these people must be hippies. They all got to be hippies. They all just think of progressive and liberal. Hey, man, this is going to be fun, man. We're going to grow some food and we're going to be in these communes. It's going to be great, man. Fantastic. I associate a familiar hippie farmer's market aesthetic with ecological responsibility, multiculturalism, and peaceful coexistence. Then, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what happens? Donald Trump! You, you really can't make up this kind of boogeyman stupidity that we get from Rachel, or is it Rachel? Yeah, it's Rachel. I'm sorry, Rebecca, Rebecca Weiss, excuse me. In 2016, when I lost several customers because of my opposition to Donald Trump and his America First ideology, I didn't think much of it. I assumed that the wholesome ethos of natural food and sustainable living would inoculate the localist community against ideologies of hate. Well, this is operating from a position that Donald Trump's America First idea, or America First in general, is an ideology of hate. Is it? I don't think so. I mean, you're saying, hey, America's great. You know what's great about America? Local. That's, that's great. That's the American tradition. Small farms, small communities, good people. That's not hate. But then more people I knew who were involved in sustainable practices came out as pro-Trump and anti-immigrant. I was astonished by growers who reviled Muslims and spread hateful slander about refugees while selling heirloom varietals that have been developed in Latin America and Middle Eastern nations. Well, maybe it's because they want to keep their communities reflecting the values of that community. And they think that uh, a large influx of Muslims or people from outside these communities might change those dynamics and therefore they lose their community. Is that a wrong thing? Is this wrong to say that? Well, I mean, I've got this community. I like it. Uh, and maybe We don't really want a lot of outsiders in here to mess it up for us. 
We always, I mean, that's always portrayed as wrong in American society. But is it? Is it wrong? I mean, is it wrong to be proud of your community and the culture that you have and the traditions that you have? Is that a wrong thing? When I talked to progressive local food advocates, they suggested that my increasing experiences of white supremacy and local food movements were limited to my region. I live in rural Appalachia, but it's not just Appalachia. You see, it's just because of these poor hayseeds here in Appalachia and the South that cause all these problems. I mean, you got these, maybe it's because they're interested in their own traditions and they don't really want outsiders in there who are going to rock the boat, like you, obviously, Rebecca Weiss, and make things difficult for them. Farmers markets across the nation, and even abroad, have, in recent years, begun to attract white supremacist groups. Kelly Wheel reported in the Daily Beast that the far right's love of the markets plays into a larger fascist talking point that idealizes, idealizes pastoral life and demonizes degenerate urban living. The contrast attempts to cast white supremacy as a pure alternative. Now, let me let me stop here because I think there are people that, that are lost and they gravitate towards some of these stupid ideologies like fascism. They gravitate towards it because they really don't understand that all of this at its core is Jeffersonian. This is all the American tradition. You go back and look at what's happening in America and the Jeffersonians were all over the place. They were in the South, they were in the Mid-Atlantic States, they were in New England. Farming, local community, local self-government, self-determination, independence, opposition to central banking, opposition to strong central government, taking care of yourself first. These are things that are purely American. Not fascist. Not European fascist. Not some ideology Jefferson, Washington, Adams, Monroe, Madison, John Quincy Adams. I mean, all of these people, uh, Martin Van Buren, Andrew Jackson. You go up through the litany of presidents, North and South, when it comes to foreign policy, for example, they were all in favor of American non-intervention. If you even look at the idea of protection, what is that? Well, you're protecting American communities from foreign competition. If you just want to say that. I mean, the people that advocated Hamilton, advocated having local economies. Jefferson said as much, hey, if when we have this embargo, you know, there's going to be something good out of that. We're going to have, we're going to have domestic industry, and we're going to take care of ourselves. Veal's story was inspired by a 2019 incident in the progressive college town of Bloomington, Indiana, in which a local farmer's market ousted farmer Sarah Dye, known as Volkmom, and the white supremacist group Identity Europa. Other farmers began to sell pens that read, Don't buy veggies from Nazis. Okay, fine. I mean, but see, this is where I think people are confused about some of these things. This is, don't go to European ideologies like Nazism. That's stupid. We've got it all right here in America. We've got Jeffers, the Jeffersonian tradition. We've got John Taylor of Caroline, and the and we've got Wendell Berry, and we've got we've got Thomas Jefferson. We have all of these. I mean, we could go down the line on these people. We've got this. We've got who owns America, right? This this uh, great book on what America really should be in independence. We've got this long-standing American tradition of self-determination and local self-government. 
It's great. Excuse me. It's great. That is where we should be going. These people that are lost, they're Indiana, they're lost. If somebody was actually out there doing this, that's a lost person. Go read Jefferson. Go read John Taylor of Caroline. Go read Eritor. Read Eritor. Read I'll Take My Stand. Read Who Owns America. Read Wendell Berry. Read these people. Because that's where you're going to find a genuinely American position on localism. That's where you're going to find it. Yes, the America First ideology is widespread in our rural communities, where a preference for natural food and holistic medicine doesn't always signal progressive politics, but rather a distrust of urban liberals, coastal elites, and shadowy globalist influences. But a similar mechanism has functioned in anti-globalist movements abroad, connecting love of the local with fear of foreign influence and opposition to the influx of ethnically diverse immigrant groups. Consider the Brexit phenomenon in the United Kingdom. While the movement to leave the European Union was driven by many complex factors, including distrust of neoliberal capitalism, Brexit likely never would have happened were it not for a spirit of hostility to and fear of the outsider, specifically the UK's diverse immigrant population. So she, I mean, she's saying, well, look, I mean, uh, I know that, look at all these, all the localism, it's all caused by race. So what does that say about you? I mean, well, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I, I, I did this because I'm, I believe in environment. I'm, I'm a progressive. I'm a, I'm a liberal. I'm a hippie. So it is troubling to note that, according to a survey by industry publication Farmers Weekly, a majority of farmers voted to leave the EU in spite of forecasts that Brexit would harm farmers and farming. It's hard to think of the British agrarian countryside as anything other than benign, but the painful truth is that these communities are overwhelmingly white in Britain. Oh my gosh, she's discovered something. The people of Great Britain are overwhelmingly white. That's amazing. That's an amazing discovery that she that she came up with that. It's like the post that somebody found a great discovery that the majority of Confederate monuments are in the South. Gee, I wonder why that would be. I wonder why the people of Great Britain and the countryside would be overwhelmingly white. Maybe it's because Great Britain has been overwhelmingly white for almost all of its history. That might have something to do with it. I don't know, though. Could be. Could be. May not be, though. Might just be because these people are in are just awful people. Or, I mean, they just, they're just terrible. Because they're all fascists, I guess. Which is just stupid. I mean, this is, this is the kind of intellectual level these people are at. Uh, it's just so dumb. V.V. Brown writes in The Guardian about her experience as an ethnic minority in the British countryside. The anticipation of negative reactions to my presence has become tiresome. It's important to understand that ignorant, racist things can come out of the mouths of nice, smelly people in Wellington boots. I mean, look, I'm not going to say there's not racist people out there in the countryside of Great Britain or in the countryside of America, all these other things. But I mean, what this person is basically doing is saying that we got to, when localism's bad because it invites people that are bad. In Sweden, neo-Nazi extremist groups have infiltrated local food movements. Helen Lowe, an expert on fascism, told the New York Times, I have hardly met anyone from these movements, neither the old ones nor the young ones, who are not serving 
me organic food and lecturing me about the dangers of fast food, the dangers of McDonald's. As a consequence, a neo-Nazi group like the Nordic Resistance Movement is occasionally represented at local farmer's markets. When people meet them in real life, they are not their media image. People get surprised. They are nice. They are talkative. They offer you a lot of good food. <laughs> well, I mean, if you don't want to be a fascist, don't be a fascist. I mean, say, oh, okay, well, I mean, they're here, but we're not going to be fascists. That's a, I mean, that's a good thing. Don't want to be fascist. So don't be a fascist. Again, this is in Europe. They don't have the Jeffersonian tradition that we have here in America. There's a difference. In recent years, ecofascism has blossomed among extremist branches of environmentalism that connect protection of natural resources with the preservation of national and ethnic purity. The mass shooters at El Paso, Texas, and Christchurch, New Zealand, both held extremist environmentalist views and far-right white nationalist prejudices. Jake N. Jelly, the man known as Q Shaman, who stormed the Capitol wearing horns and fur, demanded an all-organic diet in jail. Well, the guy was, I mean, he, okay, here, first of all, uh, that guy had some mental problems, number one. But um, I, I don't know. Was I, I don't know anything about this guy. Was he a white supremacist? I have no idea. Just because he was there, I mean, this is this is the na this is where these people naturally go. Well, oh my God, if they're if they're on the right, if they're a Trump supporter, then they are racist. They're they're operating from their own ideology and and uh, reflecting that on what they write. I mean, this piece writes like a kooky leftist with boogeymen out there, straw men everywhere that they got to push over. But the segue from localism to white nationalism is not just a danger for secular extremists and so-called Nordic pagans. These harmful ideologies have also taken root among Christians concerned with moral purity. Among traditionalist Catholics, one localist trend was labeled by writer Rod Dreher, himself a preeminent spokesman for polite Christian ethno-nationalism, as crunchy conservatism. The crunchy cons went environmentalism with holistic living with traditional social mores, withdrawing from the influence of the globalized and secularized world. Piggybacking off this, Dreher proposes Benedict Option, a suggestion that Christians should follow the examples of St. Benedict, Saint Benedict excuse me, by distancing themselves from evils of the world and living in an intentional community with others of shared values. Emma Green of The Atlantic recently profiled the traditional Catholic community in St. Mary's, Kansas, presenting it as an emblematic of what Dreher had in mind. The town is dominated by members of an extremely traditional sect. St. Mary's is home to a chapter of the Society of St. Pius X, or SSPX, named for the early 20th century pope who railed against the forces of modernism. The International Order of Priests was formed in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church's attempt in the 1960s to meet the challenges of contemporary life. Though not fully recognized by the Vatican, the priests of the SSPX see themselves as defenders of the true practices of Roman Catholicism, including the traditional Latin Mass celebrated each day in St. Mary's. What initially looks like, but, I mean, so this sounds okay, but then she says, what additionally looks like an idyllic, if somewhat old-fashioned, <laughs> community of, it's old-fashioned, uh, there's a word for that, it's called traditional community of believers where everyone learns Latin and the schools use blackboards instead of computers becomes ominous when one learns about SSPX's history of racism and anti-Semitism. Green notes even a photograph in the town school prominently featuring a Holocaust denier. So, uh, I mean, this is a bad thing. These people are, are uh, I mean, they're all just racists. 
with with no substantial. I mean, just this is a this is a drive by. You just throw it out there, and then there's no evidence. But the point of this is, oh my gosh, these Christians really are. Not, they're not Christians like me. They're not a progressive, crunchy hippie like me. These are, these are bad Christians. St. Mary's is not the only Catholic example. It's not, the only, it's not only Catholics doing it. Green points to several other examples of religious communities moving out of diverse cities into demographically homogenous enclaves. Such Christian separatist communities share with secular eco-fascists an obsession with purity that can become deadly. Localism argues for the purity of our food and land, and far-right nationalists and fascist ideologies Purity also implies purity of race, purity of blood, and a dread of the ethnic outsider as a containment, unclean. Emphasis is on the traditional, racially pure family in which everyone abides by rigid gender roles. The blood and soil rhetoric of the Nazi regime advances these prejudices. Love of land, generally understood as a positive virtue, becomes a gateway to prejudice. This is just stupid. This is just really stupid stuff. There's no other way to describe it. So if you're proud of your community and you're proud of where your family's from and you're proud of these things and you want to have communities like you, well, that's just dangerous and it's, uh, it's prejudiced. I mean, this is, this is just stupid stuff. Distinctions between insiders and outsiders become crucial to group identity with all that is depraved and corrupt relegated to the dangerous world outside the closed circle. Do you want the people who turn their neighborhood in uh, into a crap hole to bring that crap hole to your street, Dreyer wrote in his blog for the American Conservative. If the world is envisioned in the form of non-white immigrants and black, urban black communities, what initially looked like a path for escaping the world's evils becomes a recipe for fostering them. Localism without a sense of larger responsibility begins to look like xenophobia with an environmentally conscious twist. So, I mean, look, this is... This is what you're getting getting from people on the left now. Oh, wait a second here. This localism stuff, this is all about racism, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Uh, for most people, what they're trying to do is figure out how they can have their city council better reflect what, they're, what they want. You're seeing this in school boards across the country where people are saying no to the school boards. No, we're not going to let you do this. They're just getting involved in their communities. For most people, that's what's happening. Certainly, you have people in these individual secession movements, which is basically what it is, trying to go out and form communities. And we've seen it both white and black. And I talked about this a while back. There was a group in Georgia trying to do this. Black people in Georgia trying to have a community that would better reflect them and and uh, better reflect their, their interests. Uh, but this person is a globalist, right? This person is a globalist perspective, and they're trying to proselytize. But the gospel parable reminds us that the stranger and the foreigner are our neighbors as well. Um, what's interesting is a lot of these local people, I mean, she said, well, these, these people in Sweden, they're nice. They're nice people. They're not, I mean, you just want to live like us? Come on. You don't want to live like us? Well, then we don't want you here. So she brings up Martin Luther King and, um, she says, in our enthusiasm to reorient our politics and economics toward the local, we need to be aware of how localism can go wrong. This means learning to recognize strains of thinking that intentionally or not can lead to nationalist prejudices, variants on localism that normalize prejudice or insist on a closed community rather than intersecting communities with open gates and doors are dangerous. Words like globalists are often deployed as a dog whistle for Jewish as a covert anti-Semitic slur. Um, gee, you know, again, Jefferson 
the they were all interested in markets, but what they really were interested in is ensuring that the United States didn't get involved in this massive police state of policing the world. I mean, being involved in everything around the globe. That's what they were more concerned about than anything else. Localism as a defense of Western values or as a preservation of white Western civilization as some kind of fundamentally superior society is shorthand for white supremacy. (laughs) Again, you can't make up this kind of stupid and the boogeyman stuff that goes on here. Then she says, to be clear, I still believe in localism. As a grower, I'm invested in my local land and economy, even as I rely on and support broader networks. As a Christian, I see the land that sustains me as holy, while also recognizing my call to the stewardship of all creation, not just my immediate environs. Well, I don't think, I don't think anybody would say, I mean, okay, we're going to take care of ours, you take care of yours. Without that balance, localism can be dangerous. If you're not a crunchy hippie like me, it can be dangerous to have these things. So see, this is this is the problem. This is a totalitarian. This is someone who wants to tell other people how to live and how to do things in her way. In her way. So this is why I, I, I mean I think this piece is silly and stupid. And uh, but this is this is what you're going to get now if you start seeing people say, okay, well let's have our let's let's. Let's talk about localism. Let's talk about local government and self-determination. And it's also a learning tool because Americans do need to be cognizant that fascism and communism, these ideologies, are not American. They're European, and we have an American example in all this in the Jeffersonian tradition. It's all there. Small farms, independent communities uh, that reflect the people of those communities— and, I mean, that can be a diverse situation. You can have a community that reflects the people of this, uh, these beliefs and these beliefs, and then people do get to live the way they want to live. And if you have decentralized power, then you don't have any one of those communities dominating the other, or if the communities can simply ignore things. This is, this is essentially what happened in Virginia in the colonial period. Well, the, the Richmond would have some kind of decree, and they would just ignore it. These are important things. So, anyways... Um, I think this this essay shows how uh, how um, dangerous the left is actually in this case, and not just that, how uh, they are certainly. Uh, I mean, just eaten up with this fear of the boogeyman that doesn't really exist, and. Again, we need to focus on that Jeffersonian tradition, not some alien, uh, foreign ideology. Localism is not an ism. The Jeffersonian tradition is not an ism. It's a tradition. And you base that on things that are real and tangible in American society, things that have been here for a long time. And that's how you preserve the local. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.